Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Steve Bryant ushered his two small children around a convenience store, collecting diapers and snacks, then hurried to the counter to pay for them. He tried to smile at the cashier, but he was racked with nerves. As the cashier rang him up, Steve scanned the parking lot, his eyes landing on a van idling outside the store. He held his breath. The van roared to life and drove away. Steve felt a wave of relief. They were seemingly alone. But minutes later, when Bryant returned to his car, he saw the van parked next to it. Emerging from the van was his wife, Jane, and several of the Hare Krishna devotees of Bhaktipad. One of the devotees pointed a gun at Bryant and said, one way or the other, the children are coming with us. Bryant pleaded with them, but he was unarmed. He had no choice but to let the children go with their mother, back to the community of Nuvrindabin. He watched helplessly as his children were loaded into a van that quickly tore out of the parking lot. Bryant was desperate. He swore to destroy the cult that had stolen his family, but he didn't understand how far the devotees of Bhaktipad would go to protect their master. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults on the Parcast Network. Every Tuesday, we take a look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today, we continue our examination of Kirtinananda Swami Bhaktipad and the village he created, New Vrindavan. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. 
head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Last week, we followed Keith Ham as he grew from partying college dropout to Kirtanananda Swami Bhaktipad, leader of New Vrindavan, a rural communal home for Hare Krishna. In 1966, 29-year-old Keith had become a devoted follower of Prabhupada, creator of the Order of Krishna Consciousness, or ISKCON, and commonly called Hare Krishna. Keith and his boyfriend Howard Wheeler had been searching for a spiritual community. They found this in ISKCON and quickly became Prabhupada's best students. It was shortly after joining ISKCON that Prabhupada gave Keith his Hare Krishna name, Kirtanananda. Two years later, in 1968, Kirtanananda leased 5,000 acres of farmland in Moundsville, West Virginia. Christened as New Vrindavan, this would become a communal home for the Hare Krishna movement. And as a symbol of his devotion and ascension to a position of leadership within the movement, Kirtanananda was renamed Kirtanananda Swami Bhaktipad, commonly referred to as Bhaktipad. In 1972, 35-year-old Bhaktipad and his devotees set out to build a palatial home for Prabhupada. Construction on the project took years, but the followers were determined to give Prabhupada a palace fit for a high guru. However, before the palace could be completed, Prabhupada passed away in 1977. And while Bhaktipad seemed to publicly mourn Prabhupada's death, he quickly set his sights on overtaking Nuvrindavan as his own personal kingdom. This week, we'll follow Bhaktipad's rise to power and the abuse suffered by countless children living with him in New Vrindavan. We'll also delve into the lives of his followers, many of whom lost everything for speaking out against their treacherous former cult leader. After Prabhupada's sudden death in 1977, many within ISKCON were vying to be the religion's new leader. Among them was 40-year-old Bhaktipad, who saw himself as the natural heir, given that he was the architect of New Vrindavan. And while New Vrindavan was technically under the jurisdiction of ISKCON, Bhaktipad already enjoyed ruling his little kingdom as he saw fit. Bhaktipad had succeeded in ascending to the position of guru, leading the 500 devotees who lived at New Vrindavan. As the guru, he was the highest spiritual authority in the community. Only Krishna, their god, outranked him. This gave Bhaktipad an enormous amount of control over his followers, something that he thoroughly enjoyed. Slowly, he developed a full god complex, wherein the subject believes they are godlike in comparison to other humans. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here. A quick reminder, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to author and codependency expert Darlene Lancer, narcissists thrive on adulation from others, which enters them into a codependent relationship with their followers. They need the followers to praise them and will use manipulative behavior to ensure that praise continues. As the guru of New Vrindavan, Bhaktipad was the center of the world. He said, quote, The guru is the representative of God. He is to be treated as good as God by the disciple. 
to try and change this relationship is heresy, end quote. As guru, Bhaktipad led his 500 devotees in building a self-sustaining community. His followers cooked together, prayed together, sang the Hare Krishna chants, and worked together. Many former members described these early years at New Vrindavan as a kind of idyllic heaven. With the palace completed, Bhaktipad instructed his followers to work on improving their own housing. Then he asked them to construct temporary housing for the tourists that were filtering in to see the impressive building at New Vrindavan. To the wider public, the palace had become known as the American Taj Mahal, and tourism became a main source of revenue for New Vrindavan. Bhaktipad quickly realized he could capitalize on the newfound attention, and he had his followers create a printing press to publish Hare Krishna reading materials with the hopes of converting visitors. Tourism became a key source of revenue for Bhaktipad's sect of Hare Krishna. Bhaktipad saw the palace as a promotional tool and began to use press coverage on the palace to its full advantage. He gladly bragged to the press that the palace at New Vrindavan was the most successful recruiting tool for Hare Krishna and encouraged people to come visit with their families. The ploy worked. By the late 70s, enough families had moved into New Vrindavan that they were able to build a school for the children, the Garukula. It was an Indian-style boarding school where the children lived, while their parents were lodged elsewhere on the compound. The children were also tasked with assisting Bhaktipad around his house with whatever housework was needed. But despite being a draw for tourists, the devotees at New Vrindavan quickly learned that they were not welcomed by the larger Bible Belt community of Moundsville, West Virginia. As we discussed last week, in 1973, a motorcycle gang tore into New Vrindavan and had attempted to murder Bhaktipad. They were only stopped when cops arrived on the scene and broke up the fight. Following the incident, Bhaktipad sought personal protection. He approached a man named Thomas Drescher, a Vietnam veteran who had been walking a more spiritual path since returning home from war. Drescher converted to Hare Krishna and soon found himself in New Vrindavan. Bhaktipad recruited Drescher as the peace enforcement officer on campus. Drescher taught other devotees how to guard the property, how to defend themselves from attacks like the one Bhaktipad survived, and how to properly use a firearm. Drescher quickly proved himself to be an intimidating presence. In one instance, he went after a neighboring farmer named Jerry Williams. Williams was well known around town for getting drunk at the bars and trying to run over any Hare Krishna he saw along the road on his drive home. After a few too many close calls, Drescher paid Williams a visit and beat him to a pulp. The message was clear. New Vrindavan wouldn't abide harassment any longer. When he wasn't busy getting the neighbors in line, Drescher also found himself playing cop within the walls of New Vrindavan when members of the community began misbehaving. One follower in particular, named Charles St. Denis, earned a reputation for troublemaking after he was caught smuggling cocaine into New Vrindavan and selling it to other devotees. While Drescher considered him little more than a nuisance, things took a dark turn in the early 80s when Charles began bragging about sleeping with the wife of a fellow devotee, Dan Reed. When Dan heard about this, he was rightfully devastated. He confronted his wife about the affair, but his wife had a completely different version of the story. 
According to her, the affair had been far from consensual. Charles had forced himself on her. Enraged, Dan took the matter to Thomas Tresher, asking for permission to kill Charles. Drescher told Dan no and spent weeks trying to calm him down. He urged Dan to take the matter to Bhaktipad. Finally, Dan agreed. So Dan approached Bhaktipad and asked him if it was a sin to kill the man who had assaulted his wife. Bhaktipad answered that according to scripture, such a revenge killing was not a sin. It was seen in the eyes of the Lord as administering justice. Bhaktipad later denied all of this stating that scriptures also teach forgiveness and compassion. But Dan claimed that Bhaktipad gave him explicit permission to kill Charles. Thomas Drescher has since corroborated Dan's version of events, claiming that Bhaktipad specifically requested that Drescher assist Dan in the murder. Drescher was incredulous. Bhaktipad claimed Charles had also raped other women was bringing cocaine into the community, and was disrupting the spiritual journeys of the other followers. Bhaktipad was insistent. Charles St. Denis must be killed. But there was something that Bhaktipad was not telling his loyal devotee. One night, weeks before, Charles had walked in on Bhaktipad and his boyfriend, Hayagriva, formerly known as Howard, while they were being intimate. Based on rumors he'd overheard, Bhaktipad was convinced that Charles was telling people about the affair. Charles had backed Bhaktipad up against a wall. James Garbarino, a psychologist with Loyola University, has interviewed dozens of killers over the span of 20 years. He wrote that on the whole, killers have three things in common. They typically come from broken homes, they can be very charming and gregarious on command, and they tend to kill for reasons that benefit them in some way. Even though Bhaktipad wasn't the one pulling the trigger, he was sentencing Charles St. Denis to death. Given how well he fits the profile of a killer, Dan and Drescher's version of events feel highly believable. In later interviews, Bhaktipad denied that this meeting with Drescher ever occurred, but went on to say that even if such a meeting had taken place, he never would have ordered the killing of another human. He cited his vegetarianism as proof that he was against murder of any kind, a faulty line of reasoning at best. For the record, many murderers have been vegetarian, including serial killer Ted Bundy. So it's unlikely that Bhaktipad would protect Charles St. Denis based solely on meal preferences. Regardless, on June 9, 1983, Drescher and Dan put into motion a plan to kill Charles St. Denis. They led Charles to a rundown cabin in a remote part of New Vrindavan, then murdered him brutally. They beat him with a hammer and stabbed him with a screwdriver before finally shooting him and burying his body in the woods nearby. Dan and Drescher likely felt like they were administering justice, but in actuality, they were hitmen carrying out revenge for Bhaktipad. Research-based science writer and author Peg Streep has written about the link between narcissism and revenge. While Bhaktipad preached forgiveness, he himself would never be able to embody that mantra. When a narcissist feels threatened, they can become hell-bent on revenge, stooping to extremes to make themselves feel avenged. In this case, that included ordering the execution of someone who was able to destroy Bhaktipad's reputation. 
the moment he walked in on Bhaktipad and Hayagriva, Charles St. Denis was a dead man. The next morning, Bhaktipad met with Drescher. Drescher assured him that Charles St. Denis would never be found. But other threats loomed on the horizon. And unfortunately for Bhaktipad's followers, their leader had just discovered a penalty-free way of disposing with problems. Next, the aftermath of Charles' murder. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now. Back to the story. On June 9, 1983, Thomas Drescher and Dan Reed murdered a fellow devotee, Charles St. Denise, at the behest of Bhaktipad. They buried his body in the woods, where they thought it would never be found. A few days later, Charles's wife, Deborah St. Denise, reported him missing to police. Charles had been a known drug user but had never disappeared on a bender or failed to call. His absence was noticeably out of character. Police questioned dozens of devotees at Nuvrindaban, but nobody had seen anything. Without evidence, they couldn't bring charges against anyone on the compound. But rumors about Denise having assaulted a fellow devotee shortly before disappearing piqued police interest. Especially when, in December of that year, the farmhouse that Charles once lived in burned to the ground, and Bhaktipad collected the $40,000 insurance payout. The cops marked the event as suspicious and decided to start keeping tabs on New Vrindabin. Meanwhile, Drescher had a feeling that the farmhouse fire might have aroused suspicions and decided not to take chances. A few weeks after the farmhouse burned down in early 1984, Drescher poured acid on the ground where Charles was buried, with the hope of disintegrating whatever was left of him. And while Drescher was busy covering Bhaktipad's back, the 47-year-old guru was busy trying to grow his following at Nuvrindabin. Given that the farmland was in the Bible Belt, Bhaktipad began calling on his Christian roots to make Iskhan feel more familiar to the thousands of tourists pouring into the palace. Bhaktipad began enforcing his own version of Hare Krishna. He started incorporating Christian teachings into the Krishna services and included Christian hymns alongside the Hare Krishna chants. His followers began wearing Franciscan robes instead of traditional Indian saris. These changes were a blatant break from ISKCON protocol, but Bhaktipad didn't care. Bhaktipad understood the importance of making Hare Krishna feel accessible to a Christian audience. He felt it was his best possible chance for inflating membership at New Vrindavan. Additionally, Bhaktipad began an aggressive approach toward fundraising. 
Most religions rely on donations of some kind, and Hare Krishna was no different. The sect is probably most famous for chanting in airports, then asking for donations in exchange for a copy of their introductory publication. It was one of the main sources of revenue for the Hare Krishna, and was an excellent way to get the word out. But Bhaktipad felt the public preaching aspect of this method of fundraising, called Sankirtan, was too passive. Instead, his followers got more creative. Instead of heading to airports, they would head to community events, like college football games, wearing ordinary street clothes. They would playfully hand out citations to people for having too much fun. Then the devotees would tear up the citation if they were given a charitable donation. They claimed to be from various charities, including the Appalachian Orphan Fund, Jerry's Kids, and an organization that benefited Vietnam veterans. The cult made a killing from these donations. People gave hand over fist to the devotees, assuming the money was going to a good cause. Then, in January of each year, Bhaktipad would hold a ceremony in front of the whole of New Vrindavan, wherein every devotee who had participated in this warped version of Sankirtan would present their earnings to him in huge envelopes. It was like a scene out of a mobster movie. Bhaktipad would sit before a huge pile of cash, conned out of unsuspecting do-gooders. The annual intake was staggering. In 1981, they collected $2 million in donations. By 1985, it was up to $5.4 million annually. And naturally, almost none of this was reported to ISKCON or the IRS. One way or another, Bhaktipad pocketed almost all of it. Devotees weren't blind to the fact that operational costs were far less than the donations being taken in, but they fell into a pattern of rationalizing behavior that felt underhanded, rather than realizing that they, too, were being conned. The Psychology Encyclopedia defines rationalization as a defense mechanism that involves the justification of an unacceptable behavior, thought, or feeling in a logical manner, avoiding the reason of the action. In other words, the devotees were making excuses for what was clearly criminal fraud. But many devotees went along with this illegal form of fundraising for reasons other than rationalization. Bhaktipad had grown adept at coercion. Former devotees have said that if they didn't deliver a certain quota, they would be denied certain privileges, like seeing their own children. Bhaktipad installed a rewards-based system for almost everything on the compound, including reporting bad behavior. He reminded his followers of Charles St. Denis, who hurt fellow followers. He reasoned that had his behavior been reported earlier, some of this pain could have been avoided before he ultimately left the compound, abandoning his wife. Of course, Charles St. Denis had done no such thing. He never left the compound. His acid-eaten bones were lying a few hundred yards from where Bhaktipad stood. Nevertheless, New Vrindavan had slowly become a police state. Devotees quickly learned that reporting improper behavior curried them favor with Bhaktipad. So they began spying on one another and exaggerating misdeeds if it helped their story. Meanwhile, Bhaktipad threw all inhibition to the wind and began living like the king he had always envisioned himself to be. He and Hayagriva, his longtime boyfriend, would host secret late-night orgies with various male lovers, much as they had while living in New York City in the 1960s. 
And while orgies between consenting adults violated Hare Krishna law, there was nothing innately wrong with the practice. But Bhaktipad's sexual proclivities delved into far darker territory. Former followers have confirmed that Bhaktipad began making trips to the Gurukula school, the Indian-style school that the followers had built in the late 70s for children of Hare Krishna living in New Vrindavan. Bhaktipad would pick out a boy to accompany him for a few days and help out around the house, although he always left the details somewhat nebulous. Oftentimes, Bhaktipad would be seen surrounded by boys and young men, touching them affectionately in ways that made several followers uncomfortable. However, they still viewed Bhaktipad as close to God, so nobody ever reported suspicions to police. Not even when boys began bragging to their parents and friends that Bhaktipad had chosen them for something special. When pressed on the details, children described being touched in their swimsuit area and being asked to shower with other boys while Bhaktipad watched. Most of the parents were quick to chalk these stories up to children's imaginations. The idea that a man as holy and spiritual as their guru could abuse anyone was anathema to them. It was also another example of psychological rationalization. Accepting that Bhaktipad was abusing children meant accepting that God himself was abusing children. It was so unfathomable as to be impossible. So the behavior went largely ignored. Although his unusual relationship with young boys made a few devotees disturbed enough to leave the cult, it raised a red flag for one follower in particular, Steve Bryant known in the community as Sulochan. Bryant was in his early 30s and married to a woman named Jane. They joined the collective at New Vrindavan in 1981 after having shopped numerous Hare Krishna communities. Jane quickly grew extremely dedicated to the teachings of Bhaktipad and took to life in New Vrindavan well. She thrived under the rigid structure that Bhaktipad's police state provided her. She and Steve even started a family together and had two children in the mid-1980s. Women at New Vrindavan were relegated to second-class citizens. As a mother, Jane was expected to serve her husband and stay at home with her children. Oddly, she loved the subservient role and didn't seem to mind that Bhaktipad was largely dismissive of women and relegated them to second-class citizens. The way Bhaktipad treated women is actually very indicative of narcissistic personality disorder. According to a study by Dr. Scott Keeler at Kent State University, narcissistic men tend to resent heterosexual women more than any other group. Narcissistic men are also more likely to want to dominate or exert power over heterosexual women. The link between resenting heterosexual women and needing to dominate them might seem unusual, but when looked at through the point of view of a narcissist, it makes complete sense. A narcissist needs constant admiration and fears being upstaged. They're quick to assume their power is being threatened and will act out in response. In this way, a traditional patriarchal society is uniquely primed to prop up narcissistic men. In New Vrindavan, women were already deemed less important than men, which allowed Bhaktipad automatic dominance over them. Then he need only gain the approval and adulation of the men in his cult, effectively cutting his work in half. Women who stood up to Bhaktipad threatened this power structure. Therefore, he worked to keep women in secondary roles at all times, 
to undercut the possibility of a woman ever being a real threat. It might seem odd that a woman like Jane Bryant would be the one to suggest joining such a cult, but Steve Bryant has described his wife as naturally submissive, so perhaps the new Vrindabin culture was comforting to her. Psychiatrist Paul Rosenfels writes that submissive personalities feel at home in an ordered world that brings understanding to their lives. Bhaktipad offered Jane exactly that, but Steve was less enchanted. He was uncomfortable with the way women were treated on the compound. There was no path of ascension to leadership for women. They were expected to be subservient, to obey orders without voicing opinions. But he grew truly disturbed when a fellow devotee mentioned that her husband hit her. She said Bhaktipad had told him and several other men on the campus that it was appropriate to beat their wives into submission. Bhaktipad would later claim that Steve was embittered towards Nuvrindabin after having been turned down for a position running the visitor's lodge. But Steve was far more concerned for the safety of his young children. He believed the rumors of abuse that others were ignoring and worried that his sons would be victimized as they grew older. He knew he had to leave. He pleaded with Jane to join him. But Jane's loyalty to Bhaktipad was absolute. She refused. Even so, Steve made the decision to leave Nuvrindabin with their two sons, Serva and Nimoy, ages three and five. He knew it would be a jailbreak. From a legal standpoint, this would be considered kidnapping, but Steve saw no other option, and on June 24, 1984, he smuggled his children out of Nuvrindabin under the cover of darkness and put as many miles as he could between himself and the cult. He drove without stopping, as far as his gas tank would take him. He pulled over at a gas station and looked for signs of having been followed. When he thought the coast was clear, he started to fill up the car, then went inside for food and diapers. But when he got back to the car, several devotees jumped out of a nearby van with Jane and held Steve at gunpoint. Helpless, he watched as his children were taken from him and loaded into a van headed for New Vrindabin. After the failed escape, Steve was heartbroken. He resolved to get his children back, no matter what the cost, and take down New Vrindabin in the process. Steve went on the offensive. He self-published a newsletter he titled Jonestown in Moundsville, detailing the fraud and abuse he had witnessed in New Vrindabin. He also wrote about Bhaktipad's erotic fascination with young teenage boys. He tried to garner as much media attention as possible. Steve knew he was putting himself in danger. He knew there were followers who would kill for Bhaktipad. In fact, Steve's writings suggest that devotees may have known more about the disappearance of Charles St. Denis than they had let on. But the apparent danger did not deter him from trying to protect his children. He told his story to any reporter who would listen. He would mail his newsletter to all the devotees in New Vrindabin, as well as ISKCON leadership. He worked tirelessly to bring Bhaktipad to justice. But Bhaktipad had dealt with threats before, and he always had someone at hand, happy to do his dirty work. When we return, Steve Bryant brings national attention to Bhaktipad. Now back to the story. 
1985, Steve Bryant launched a campaign against New Vrindavan and its leader, Kirtanananda Swami Bhaktipad, in an effort to expose the abuse that he had witnessed while living there. This was largely done in an effort to save his two little boys from falling prey to Bhaktipad as they grew older. And slowly, other former followers began coming out of the woodwork, many of whom left for the same reasons Brian wrote about. They had found reintegration to the larger world to be difficult. Bryant once estimated that about 95% of devotees left the cult within a year or two, only to be replaced by fresh-faced new followers, perpetually keeping New Vrindavan's population hovering around 500. However, even though they weren't at New Vrindavan all that long, they'd already given up their income, in many cases their life savings, and severed ties with most friends and family outside the cult. Reassimilation can be a grueling task for people recovering from cults. Needless to say, many former followers were thrilled to connect with Steve Bryant and with one another, a kind of support system as they worked to regain control of their lives. They wrote letters detailing the abuse they had suffered or witnessed, which Steve compiled as evidence against Bhaktipad. Meanwhile, Bhaktipad consulted with his most loyal advisors on how to address the bad publicity that Steve Bryant was bringing. Hayagriva and a senior devotee named Randall Gorby both advocated for Steve's murder. Bhaktipad has since claimed that he discouraged that idea because he knew that the authorities would investigate Bhaktipad and his followers the second any harm came to Steve. And while this line of reasoning was more sound than his vegetarianism argument, it's far from proof of innocence. For the time being, Bhaktipad, Hayagriva, and Gorby agreed to let Steve Bryant live. But a new devotee at New Vrindavan would soon force their hand. In mid-1985, Bhaktipad was approached by a new follower named Michael Schachman. Schachman inquired about being placed on a path toward becoming a guru one day. Bhaktipad told Shockman that he didn't know him well enough to put him on such a path, but was willing to reevaluate his standing once he had gotten to know him better. This might have been a rare instance of sound judgment from Bhaktipad. Shockman made other devotees nervous. He was often seen talking to himself in an agitated state, and many of his fellow devotees felt he might be mentally unwell. On October 27, 1985, Bhaktipad was supervising devotees as they laid brick for a new walkway in front of the temple. While the sun was setting, devotees looked up to see Shockman charging Bhaktipad with a metal pipe. He struck Bhaktipad on his back twice and once across the head. Shocked, the devotees sprang to Bhaktipad's rescue, pulling Shockman off him. Bhaktipad was transported to the hospital in critical condition. He fell into a coma. Blood clots formed in his brain, and doctors could not give a hopeful prognosis. But Bhaktipad was surprisingly resilient. He emerged from his coma after three weeks, and his doctors saw quick improvement. Bhaktipad was soon able to return to New Vrindavan, although he didn't walk away completely unscathed. He suffered lifelong equilibrium issues, short-term memory loss, and deafness in one ear. To his believers, Bhaktipad's remarkable recovery was only further proof of his divinity. Devotees saw that Bhaktipad had enemies in the same way that Christ had enemies. Steve Bryant had vowed to destroy Bhaktipad, 
Shockman tried to kill Bhaktipat, but God had protected him. Michael Shockman was taken to prison, but the threat of Steve Bryant still loomed. Bhaktipad was done taking chances. He turned to his enforcer, Thomas Drescher, and ordered Bryant's execution. In May 1986, Bryant was on a road trip to Los Angeles, hoping to meet with former Hare Krishna, who would help his cause. Thomas Drescher tailed him the whole way. On May 22nd, while Bryant was parked just half a mile from the Los Angeles ISKCON temple, Thomas Drescher pulled up to his van and shot him twice through the driver's side window. He was killed instantly. Bryant had been just 33 years old. Drescher immediately went on the run. He ditched his rental car and grabbed a quick flight to Dallas before police found Steve's body. Drescher then rented a car and drove to Ohio, where he telephoned Randall Gorby, the elder devotee who had lobbied for Bryant's murder. Drescher told Gorby that Bhaktipad had promised him $8,000 for the execution and safe passage across the border. But Gorby told Drescher that he was mistaken. Over the next few days, Drescher desperately tried to get a hold of Bhaktipad, but Bhaktipad wouldn't speak to him. He realized that he'd been played. Five days later, on May 27, 1986, Drescher was arrested. Drescher quickly learned that the cops weren't nearly so interested in him as they were in Bhaktipad. Between the murders of St. Denise and now Bryant, they were convinced Bhaktipad had blood on his hands. But Drescher wouldn't agree to any plea deals. He told them, Bhaktipad is my lord and master. Drescher was charged with the murders of Steve Bryant and the missing Charles St. Denise. In December 1986, it took a jury three hours to find Thomas Drescher guilty of the murder of Charles St. Denise. He was then extradited to California to stand trial for the murder of Steve Bryant. Drescher was quickly convicted in California, too. This was largely thanks to recorded phone conversations between Drescher and Randall Gorby. It was only then that Drescher realized Gorby had set him up. He had been cooperating with the police after the murder of Steve Bryant in an attempt to save himself. In December 1986, around the same time Drescher was convicted, law enforcement began building a case against Bhaktipad in earnest. In addition to the Drescher murders and the allegations Bryant made during multiple visits with police, they collected stories from former followers. Oblivious to the danger closing in around him, Bhaktipad set off on a national publicity tour in early 1987. He appeared on shows like Larry King Live and Sally Jesse Raphael in an attempt to repair his image as a spiritual leader, suggesting he was a victim of religious persecution. While on tour, he was routinely confronted by former followers, accusing him of abuse or hiding the sexual abuse of preteen boys. It brought Bhaktipad and the entire religions of Hare Krishna under intense scrutiny. In particular, the larger ISKCON organization had grown disenchanted with the bad press, and the allegations of abuse and murder spurred them to action. On March 16, 1987, they expelled Bhaktipad from ISKCON, but his new Vrindavan devotees remained loyal. For many of his most devoted followers, who had stayed with him for years, Bhaktipad was above Viscon. He was God, and they would not leave him. Not that anyone ever really got away from the cult unscathed. 
Bhaktipad caught wind that Gorby was cooperating with police, even agreeing to testify against Bhaktipad at trial. In mid-1989, Gorby was found dead in what authorities ruled a suicide, though many believe Gorby was murdered. Even without Gorby, police had enough to build a case against Bhaktipad. And on May 25, 1990, he was indicted for racketeering, conspiracy to murder, financial fraud, and insurance fraud. The trial began on March 11, 1991. The jury heard from young men who testified about sexual assault at the hands of Bhaktipad. Some of the victims were as young as seven when the abuse began. Bhaktipad refuted all of this. He denied any knowledge of the murders. He claimed he didn't even know Thomas Drescher very well. Only the devotees of New Vrindavan believed him. On March 29, 1991, Bhaktipad was found guilty of conspiracy to murder, insurance fraud, and fraudulent fundraising, among other charges. Bhaktipad was sentenced to 30 years in prison, but was placed on house arrest while the charges were on appeal. He was housed in an apartment in Wheeling, West Virginia. While unable to attend services at New Vrindavan, he was able to call in via speakerphone. Bhaktipad's appeal was handled by renowned criminal defense attorney Alan Dershowitz, who had made a name for himself in the widely publicized murder trial of Klaus von Bülow. Dershowitz was able to get Bhaktipad's verdict overturned by arguing that the entire case against the cult leader had been driven by religious intolerance and shaky circumstantial evidence. On August 17, 1993, Bhaktipad returned to New Vrindavan, a free man. As a newly exonerated spiritual guru, Bhaktipad became a poster child for religious persecution. He was even invited to speak at the World Conference of Religion in Chicago. His devotees purchased Bhaktipad a new Winnebago to make the trip. But immediately upon arriving in Chicago, Bhaktipad sent his driver to the airport to pick up a young Malaysian boy he had hired for the weekend. Soon after, the driver, a devotee, walked in on Bhaktipad and the young boy being intimate. The driver reported the incident to the senior devotees at New Vrindavan. Soon after, Bhaktipad was banished from New Vrindavan. Finally, the majority of his devotees began to see him for what he was. They abandoned him. And with nobody to follow him, Bhaktipad retired to a lodge in Little, West Virginia, in an area known as Silent Mountain. That same year, in 1994, Bhaktipad faced a retrial for racketeering charges. This time, he pled guilty and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. In 1998, New Vrindavan returned to the auspices of ISKCON. To this day, they've been actively working to erase the sins of Bhaktipad. As of 2010, New Vrindavan had a population of 352. It's a small community, but thriving now that it's out from under the control of Kirtanananda Swami Bhaktipad. Bhaktipad was released from prison on good behavior in 2004, at age 67. In 2008, he fled the United States for India, claiming he wasn't going to stay where he wasn't wanted. He died of kidney failure just three years later. His mother had always wanted him to become a great preacher. Instead, Bhaktipad terrorized hundreds of people for over 20 years, tarnished the name of everyone associated with him, and died much the same as he lived, utterly 
alone. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really does help our show. Join us next Tuesday for a new episode of Cults. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Tim Davis and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.